And I promise we will end in, we'll, we'll begin our study in Exodus. But before we get there, I want to start with Psalm 77. Psalm 77 says, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and I was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. And I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your works and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies, they sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And so with this psalm, to open up our passage today, I read it because the psalmist, and I love reading the psalms, by the way, because if you think the Christian life or the life of trusting God is something that's easy and everything's always just kind of knit together and it's no big deal, I read the psalms and I find comfort because I see people trying to walk by faith and struggling and I can relate to that. I cannot relate to people that don't have any struggles. So I see the psalmist, he's in anguish. He lists out all the reasons and the ways that he's in anguish through verse 1 through 9. And then in verse 10, he stops after listing all of his anguish and pain and says, but I will remember the works of the Lord. I remember all the things I'm experiencing right now, but I want to remember the works of the Lord because he's been faithful in the past, and that tells me he can be faithful in the present and in the future. He says, I remember back to the birth of our nation. You redeemed your people. We talked about that word last week. Redeemed means to be bought back, to to be slaves, and then to be bought out of slavery. You redeemed us, Lord. He says, I remember back to the time when they were delivered from Egypt. Verse 20, he says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And and this is no doubt a miracle because Moses and Aaron were somewhat reluctant. They were not actually 
the most faithful people. They, they struggled, they, they wrestled. This is what God's called me to do, but they won't listen and they kind of go back and forth. So the fact that he leads them and, and, you know, afterwards, we're looking from the future that Moses and Aaron didn't get to see. The fact that he led them out by the hand of Moses and Aaron tells me that it was the Lord doing it and not them, because they faltered in their calling. They struggled. They said, I can't be the guy that's called. I can't even speak well. But I want to point out that it was never meant to be Moses or Aaron that led them out. It was the Lord himself The psalmist is looking back from the point of his trials on God's past faithfulness going, if God brought Israel, the entire nation, out of Egypt's bondage and slavery, he can bring me out of my current circumstances. Only God's word will deliver his people from slavery. And that includes slavery to sin, slavery of the fear of man, whatever kind of bondage you find yourself in, only God's word can deliver you. Only Jesus can deliver you. But Moses has a part to play in that. He must deliver God's word to the people. And so as we begin this morning, we look at Moses questioning his calling. In chapter uh, 6, verse um, 10 through 13, we see God reconfirming, this is what I've called you to do, Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, go in, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses, having just talked to the Israelites, and they're not believing Moses' words, says, the children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. If, if your own people, God, won't listen to me, what makes me think that Pharaoh will listen to me? I don't have any credibility with my own brethren. And so the Lord then reaffirms and says to Moses and gave them a command for the children of Israel and the Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And so he reconfirms the calling and he says, no, no, it's you that's supposed to do this. And then Moses says, I have uncircumcised lips. They won't listen to me. And you might be saying, what in the world does that mean? Well, you're not in bad company. Many people would read that and go, what? That's not how circumcision works. And so what what he's going to say here and what he is saying is, my lips are unfit for God's use. I'm not holy enough. I'm not good enough. I'm unclean. I'm basically a, a faithless follower. Which is interesting because many of the prophets struggled with this. God said, I want you to go tell this people my message. And Isaiah the prophet, one of the most profound prophets of the Old Testament, he actually struggled with this too. And in chapter 6, in the year that he had a platform in his culture and in his day, Isaiah did. And, And many of the reasons that Isaiah thought he had a platform to speak on behalf of God is because the king that was in power at the time agreed with his stance. He was a godly king. And so because there was a godly ruler, he goes, hey, they're going to listen to me. But when that godly ruler died, Isaiah was like, now what? My guy didn't get elected. Who's going to listen to me? It's not popular anymore. But what happens is that in that moment, the Lord gives him a vision. And Isaiah all of a sudden is lifted up. And he's in the throne room of God. 
and he sees the throne of God itself, and he sees God himself surrounded by smoke and a cloud, and it's just this overwhelming presence of God. He's surrounded by angels who are crying out, holy, 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 day and night. And in that moment, Isaiah realizes that the king he serves is not the king on the throne on earth, but the king that's in heaven. And he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips amidst a people of unclean lips. I'm not worthy. Have you ever seen uh, uh, Wayne's World? We're not worthy. We're not, except it's not anything like that. I just want to make sure you're awake. It's not anything like that. He's seeing the Lord. It's not Aerosmith. It's not John Bon Jovi. It's not even Garth Brooks. It's the Lord of heaven and earth. And he bows down. He says, I'm unworthy. Because in the presence of God, nobody worthy. No, not one. And at that moment, the Lord hears his cry, his confession, I'm unworthy. And he sends an angel with a coal from underneath the altar. There's a fire of incense. He, he, he picks out a coal, burning hot, and he picks it up, and he, he puts it on Isaiah's lips. And you think, whoa, what in the world? That, he purifies the lips of Isaiah, and he says, now you are clean, you're worthy, you can go, I've sent you. Who will go for me and speak to this people? And Isaiah, in his renewed, reborn state, says, I will go for you. I'm willing. The only thing that makes any of us worthy to speak on behalf of God is God's work of purging the sin from our lives. And that doesn't mean moment by moment we won't have to come to him again and say, I'm unworthy. But he's the one that makes us holy. He's the one who calls us. He's the one who sends us. He's the one who gives us the message. And so this is what God is saying to Moses. Yeah, you're right. You're not worthy. But because I picked you, guess what? You're worthy. And so he's reaffirming this through verse 14 through verse 27. He goes on to give this genealogy. And the genealogies in the Bible, if you ever get caught up in them, you're like, what is the point? I don't care whose moms, whose fathers, cousins, brothers, uncle. I can't even keep up with that. The purpose of the genealogies is to take you through the theme because eventually families drop off and they don't talk about them anymore because they're taking the genealogy from Adam and then to Noah, and then to uh, Abraham, and then to Isaac and Jacob, and eventually David. And all these, these are all going to the main characters of the story that God's going to pick that are all descendants of Noah. Excuse me, yeah, Noah too, but also Adam. And so God affirms that, you know, Moses, Aaron, you guys are the ones that I have picked, and you're going to come from the tribe of Levi. You're Israelites. You are my people. And so in verse 14, he says, These are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. And then it stops. He's the firstborn. Verse 15, And the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. 
And the years of the life of Levi were 137. But with all the other, the other two brothers, it stops just with what their sons. But with Levi, it continues on to give us the rest of the lineage of Levi, but it doesn't give any of the other 12 sons. Why? The purpose is so that you'll see that Aaron and Moses are descendants of the tribe of Levi that will ultimately be the priestly line, the line through whom those that go into the altar will represent God before man and man before God. They will intercede on behalf of the nation. Why? Because they're Levites and they have the right genes. Get it? Levi? Levi genes? Come on. I know it's a dad joke, but come on. Give me a little... So they're Levites. And so it continues on past just the sons. The sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimei, according to their families. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These are the families of Levi, according to their generations. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137. The sons of Izhar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Zithri. Aaron took to himself Elishiba, daughter of Amminadab, sister of Nashan, as wife, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel as wife, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites according to their families. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. And so it says that three times. These are the same Moses and Aaron that we have in our narrative today. So I have there for you a family tree and it shows the first three sons of Jacob, or further known as Israel, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And for the space on the graphic I have there for you, Levi is in the center because that's who Aaron and Moses come through. And then all their family members. And this will be the tribe through, they will have the priesthood and there will be representatives in each of the family's plot of land when they enter into the land. But for now, we have Moses and Aaron who are called by God and and given authority by God to share the word of God with Pharaoh and with the children of Israel. So now back to the narrative. Verse 28 through 30, we see that it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How shall Pharaoh heed me? So he's not saying this again necessarily. This is just a reiteration of what he already said at the end of chapter 6 in verse 10 through 13, or in the middle of chapter 6. 
And so the point is, now that we've gotten this genealogy out of the way, now that we see that he is in fact called to speak, then we also look at, we come back to our circumstances. Moses still struggles with his calling. And I don't know about you guys, but the things that God gives me to do, most of the time, I feel completely uh, unworthy. I feel uncalled. I feel unprepared. Um, I, I don't feel like this is who I'm supposed to be. If you asked me 20 years ago what I would be doing at 38 years old, this would not be it at all. I was going to change the world. I was going to fix, I was going to engineering. I was going to design cars that guys like my dad that busted their knuckles on for years so the cars would be able to be worked on. They designed these things so that you can't even get your hands in there, and now they're computers, and I was going to fix that. And then I got to engineering school and realized, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm not smart enough to do that. And as long as you people all want your cars to do 30,000 things, they're going to be hard to work on. So I, I, I struggled with that. But the point is, is that God used engineering college to break me and show how little I actually knew about life. And then he brought me to a place where he showed me I needed Jesus. And so he gave me a purpose and a calling that if I could have picked it, I would have never done it. But Moses is in this spot. He still doesn't understand that it's actually his weakness and his lack of confidence that he's focusing on. But those things that we know about ourselves, they don't change the plan of God and they don't weaken the plan of God. His calling, his election are sure. He didn't just go, ah, I think I'll use them. That before we were born, he chose us to play a role in sharing the good news of salvation in the world. Now, Moses has no power. He has no authority on his own. But if God is for him or with him, then who can be against him? Nothing. No one. No how. So God to Moses, I'm the Lord. Simply speak my word to Pharaoh. And Moses to God, Pharaoh won't listen to me because of me. And God says, get over it. And so the bad news is that when Pharaoh ignores, and he does over and over again, when he ignores and defies God's ambassador, he's not ignoring Moses. He's not defying Aaron. He's actually ignoring and defying Almighty God. He doesn't realize it, but he's stepping in a big pile, and it's only on him. When men and women today, by the way, ignore and defy God's Son, when they ignore Jesus and what he says, when they ignore what his disciples say, they're not ignoring us. They're not rejecting us. They're rejecting the truth, capital T, Jesus. They're ignoring God Almighty, the one who loves them and desires to save them and cause them to turn from their wickedness. Did you know that Ezekiel, you know, people always say in the Old Testament that in the Old Testament, God's just this God of wrath and he just hates everybody and he's just brutally murdering. And, and, and it could seem like that if you read it through the wrong lens. But in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, it says, do you not know that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked? I don't know about you guys, but when I watch action movies and I watch superheroes, they take some pleasure in the death of the wicked, the most righteous of them. 
Like, I'm a Captain America fan, but when the bad guy goes down, he's like, yeah, you know, and I'm with him. But God's not like that. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he desires that they should turn from their wicked ways and then live. And we're going to see that in today's passage. But for those who receive and believe the message that even Jesus had to say, it's the same message that Pharaoh's going to receive, their salvation and forgiveness eternally. And if you turn to John chapter 17... As Jesus is praying, it's, he's spending time with him and his father. And I love this because when Jesus is praying to the father, you get to know the heart of God in two-dimensional way. And then when you see it lived out, it's, it's very powerful. Jesus spoke these words, verse 1, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was created. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. In other words, they've received it. Verse 7, Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. And this is the verse I want you to focus on. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So this is the work of the Christian, to receive the words of Jesus and to believe that God the Father sent him. And that's what Moses is doing. He's taking the words that Pharaoh, from God to give to Pharaoh and that all, the only thing that's lacking is for Pharaoh to believe that those words are from God and that God sent him to Pharaoh. And so that's the hope that we can have life by hearing. And faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes by the word of God. And so in chapter 7... We find out that Moses and Aaron have roles. And those roles are very similar to our roles. It's just that they're in the Old Testament and we weren't. Chapter 7, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. So Moses and Aaron, too, have similar but different roles. Moses is a type of God He's a witness of God. He reflects God to Pharaoh. He's not God. He's not making him God. He just looks like the role of God because Pharaoh can't see God. And so Moses receives the word from God. He speaks it to Aaron, and then Aaron plays the role of a prophet. And if that's confusing, a prophet literally just means a mouthpiece, or you might say a microphone. 
I would be like God and the microphone would be the prophet. It takes the message in, it transmits it to the speakers, and then the hearers can receive the message. A prophet simply does that. There's nothing crazy about it. They hear God's voice and they repeat what God says to whom he sends them to. That's a prophet's job. And so, Moses, you're going to be like God. You're going to tell Aaron, your brother, what to say. And then Aaron, verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you. And Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. So here's the message, and here's how to transmit the message. That's what we've gone across. And this is really the same for you and I. Moses' role, represent God to Pharaoh, and then speak all my words to Aaron. Our role, represent God to the world. Whoever he puts in your life, be a representative of him. Get to know him and represent him well. Reflect his character. Moses' job, speak all my words to Aaron. Who's Aaron? Moses' brother. Share God's word with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Share God's word with each other. That's it. And, and by doing so, you will stir one another up to know what God has called you to be, to know what God says, to know what he's like. We have these reminders all the time. Aaron's role, receive God's word from Moses. Okay, so get with somebody that's further along with me, somebody that I feel like's closer to God with me, or excuse me, closer to God than I am, and, and spend time with him. Ask him questions. Iron sharpens iron. It's like two swords that are are being sharpened by one another's countenance. If somebody knows more than you, don't be overwhelmed by that. Instead, just start learning from them. We do that in every other area of life. If I know somebody's really good at fishing and I want to go fishing, I go with them and I start imitating them. If I want to learn how to lay brick, I'm not going to hang out with somebody that does paper mache. I'm going to find somebody that, that lays brick and I'm going to go, How did you? why did you do that? You know, if I want to know how to do anything in life, I find somebody that knows more about it than me. Why don't we do that in our Christian walk? Why does our pride get in the way? Well, they know more than me, so I can't roll. I can't hang. Well, good. If you're hanging out with people that are younger than you in Christ and they can't teach you anything, how are you ever supposed to learn anything? We all learn from somebody. And so the second thing Speak all that Moses tells you to the audience that I've picked, to Pharaoh. So for us as believers, listen to what God has to share with you personally. Listen to what God's people have to share with you. And then share what you learn. You're going to learn more by speaking it back. Share what you learn as God gives you opportunity. And I would say also, pray that God will give you opportunities. Because guess what? He already is, but he'll give you eyes to see those opportunities, to speak the truth in love, to share. And really, all of this goes, it's all culminated in the Great Commission. Jesus said to every one of his disciples, and he's saying to each one of you, come and follow me. Come and follow me. What did he say to Peter? Come and follow me. And then he said right after, and I will make you a fisher of men. Now, he probably didn't say that to you. Most of you aren't commercial fishermen. He might have said something entirely different. 
Come and follow me. I want to use what you do, and I want to glorify my name through that. And if you think you have an occupation where God can't get the glory, you're wrong. Worship is not about Sunday. Worship is a lifestyle, and it's lived out in everything you do. God gets so much glory through people being who they are in Christ in the workplace. And so share what you learn as God gives opportunities, and then don't look at it as just come and follow. Most people stop there, by the way. Okay, I'll follow Jesus into the church. But follow him when you leave. He walks out with you. He says, I'm going to be with you. And then go and make disciples doesn't mean you have to go to the mission field. Your mission field is as soon as you walk past that threshold, as soon as you walk into your job this semester, as soon as you walk, get into your squad car, as soon as you, whatever you do, God has what there? Every one of you work with what? People. And people are who we are meant to be here for. It's all about relationships. So some of you get sick and tired of going to your job. I get it. It's a, it's a grind. But maybe it's more than stocking shelves. Maybe it's more than filling out paperwork. Maybe it's whatever. Maybe God has you there because he has people there that are lost and have no hope, and you are the vessel that has it. And he's saying, go there, jump through the hoops, fill out the paperwork, fill out the filing, and while you're there, talk to so-and-so because they really need hope. They don't have any. As you go, make disciples. So that's, that's... Our role, that's Moses and Aaron's role. But then there's God's role that mixes in there. Is it me or is it God? Yes, we work together with God to reach people. But God's role in this particular case, verse 3, he says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, how many of you are encouraged that if God's told you to go and speak, and then he right afterwards says, and they're not going to listen to you. And some of you are getting ready to start school. Or some of you, you know, whatever you're going to be doing, you have people that you know when you speak to them, they gloss over and they will not listen and you got to go do it anyway. I got that too sometimes. I've got kids. I'm a pastor. Um, You know, like that's, that's, every one of us have that. God doesn't say make people hear. He says speak. He says, I'll deal with the rest. He's going to deal with Pharaoh's heart. And here's the reality. He's going he's to shine the sun, his S-O-N, on each and every heart, and they will be accountable for how they respond. But their heart condition is what will make them respond one way or another. Because the same sun, S-U-N, applied to wax or ice does what? It melts it. But when you take the sun and you bake clay, it dries out and gets what? Hard. And that's what's happening to Pharaoh's heart. His heart is made of dirt. It's made of clay. And because of that, he hardens his heart against the message. So verse 3, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. So Pharaoh's not going to hear. He's going to harden his heart so that the people can be delivered. It's kind of odd, right? 
He's not going to listen. He's going to reject the message so that they can be delivered. What was the message? Let my people go. He's not going to do it so they can be delivered? Wait a minute. That's confusing. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. They look at Pharaoh like this almighty character, and yet when the Pharaoh says no and digs in his heels, then I'm going to deliver them, and they're going to go, wow, he's not very powerful. And so we see the role of God here is he's going to deal with the Pharaoh's heart. And I'm going to turn real quick to Titus in chapter 1, verse 15, where it says this about the condition of the heart. It says to the pure... All things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and their conscience have been defiled. Now, interesting, they profess to know God, but in their works they deny Him. We live in a culture where many people say the word God. They profess to know God, but if you look at the fruit in their lives, they're really rejecting His Lordship. By their works, they deny his godship. They say, no, I'm in charge. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's convicting to me. Because I I claim that he is my God, but I wonder how much I actually live that. But here we have the Pharaoh who claims to know God. He actually claims to be God, by the way. And yet what God's going to do by multiplying signs and wonders is he's going to reveal to all of Pharaoh's followers, his subservience, that Pharaoh's not actually God. He's going to multiply his signs, his plagues, and his wonders in Egypt. But when we fulfill our role, when Moses and Aaron are faithful to do their part, then God does the rest. He deals with the hearts of the unbeliever. God will judge the Pharaoh. He's going to be accountable for the things that he's going to hear from Moses and Aaron. He'll deliver his people. Those who believe will be delivered from Egypt. And then he'll reveal that he alone is Lord to the rest of Egypt, the world. And we're going to see that as we go forward in Exodus. So verse 6, it says, Moses and Aaron did so. They obeyed just as the Lord commanded them, so they also did. These are sweet sweet words to the Lord. When we simply hear what he says and we do it, there's so much blessing attached. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. I love this note that mentions their age. And I oftentimes wonder why their age is even involved. But I think it's for us who think that there's a retirement age in a walk of faith. I don't know about you guys, but I'm thinking when I'm around 80 or 83, God's going to be pretty much done with me and I can kick up my feet and just enjoy watching other people do stuff. But in this part, it seems like Moses and Aaron are just getting started at 80 or 83. Now, no doubt they're going to live beyond 100, but even so, they've just began to see the wonderful works of God. And so, even at 80, you, you can teach old dogs new tricks. At least God can. So then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, here's what I want you to do. 
You shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, and so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. So we see this miracle of God. It wasn't Moses or Aaron. It was them just doing what God said, throw a stick on the ground. That, that was their enchantment, if you want to call it that. They weren't enchanting anything. They were just doing what God said, throw the stick on the ground. I've thrown lots of sticks on the ground. What happens? It lands, sometimes it breaks, the dog picks it up, the kids trip over it, whatever. But in this case, God said, I'm going I'm to defy natural order. I'm going to turn a stick into a snake or a serpent. Many believe it was actually like a crocodile or a lizard. But it doesn't matter because it turned into something that was living and breathing. But in this case, the Pharaoh's like, well, that's no big deal. I got people that can do that. So he calls his people in and says, hey, do what he did. And so they go, okay, no problem. And then they, Alakazam, whatever, throw a stick on the ground. And it says there, every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. Now, wait a minute. I thought only God could do miracles. And that's why it says in 1 John to test the spirits to say they're, see if they're of God. Because guess what? Demons can do miraculous signs and wonders. And that's why you can't trust in signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are never meant to save. They do oftentimes confirm the works of God, but they do not deliver. They do not save. Jesus said a wicked and perverse generation seeks a sign. Did that mean he didn't ever do any signs or wonders? No. But it says there that they, they all threw down their rod and they became serpents. But notice this, Aaron's rod swallowed up theirs. So you can do the same trick, but guess what? My snake's going to eat your snake. And, and <laughs> that had to be creepy, by the way. You know, but it says there, having seen this, nonetheless, verse 13, Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Why didn't he heed them? Because big deal, your miracle doesn't say anything to me because my guys did the same miracle. So, uh, but what does Satan do? He comes in as an angel of light and he counterfeits and imitates the things that God does to confuse those who might perhaps see and have their eyes open to the truth. But I want to show you this, two different responses to the same exact sign. Because in chapter 4, verse 31, that's what they did. They, they said, okay, Moses and Aaron came in with the message to the elders of Israel. They spoke it, and then they did the miracle. They threw the rod on the ground turned into a snake. And the children of Israel respond by praising the Lord that he heard what they were going through, their bondage, their slavery, bowing down and giving thanks, worshiping God. That was their response. Pharaoh sees the exact same miracle. And his heart grew hard. He did not believe them because his sorcerers and magicians could do the same thing. He said, it's just a trick. It's just a sleight of hand. He's a skeptic. We've met these folks. Well, that's, that was coincidence. So that's interesting because in 2 Timothy, in chapter 3 and verse 8, 
We read this passage last week where it says that know this in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud. And it lists all these negative qualifications of these individuals that are not of the kingdom of God. They're actually false teachers. They're they're wicked men. And then it says there in verse 8, just as and it gives names to these people we just read about in Exodus. Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. And what's interesting is they'll perform the same miracles, multiple miracles after this. The, the plagues, we call them. These signs before Pharaoh. He'll perform the signs, and then these magicians will come in, and they'll do the sign too. I think it's really funny because they never, take the, they never take the plague away from Pharaoh in Egypt. They actually just add to it. You'd think if he was going to bring in a crew to prove that God wasn't really God, he'd bring in a cleanup crew. You're like, oh, the river's blood? Bzz, no, it's not. You know, oh, the, the, the land's covered in frogs? Bzz, no, it's not. But instead, they're like, well, we can come up with extra frogs and we can make more bloody water. And what in the world does that do? Other than prove you can do the exact thing that already happened. You're still less powerful than God. And so all that to say, Moses and Aaron are faithful to do their part. But why does God do the plagues? We already talked about how people see God as this this wrathful, vengeful, judgmental God in the Old Testament. But notice that God says, I'm going to do signs and wonders. He doesn't call them plagues. Egyptians believed that the Pharaoh, by the way, was the one on earth, the steward of earth, the God person on earth, incarnate, that actually was in charge of keeping creation in balance and in harmony and working together. The word they use for this is ma'at. And there was a, a different word on Captain Planet. I can't remember what it was. But it was like all these forces working together in order to keep balance through recycle programs and through the earth and the wind and fire and you know and whatever other band name you can think of and but all of this is that they they believed in their culture that pharaoh held it all together but god's desire through the plagues that we call them or the signs was not to destroy the egyptians but to reveal the only true lord to them uh, the plagues would show that pharaoh is actually powerless before the one true and living God. Did you know that? That Pharaoh wasn't in charge of keeping the river going. The nation of Egypt would never be a powerful nation without the Nile, but they worshiped the Nile. The nation of Egypt would never be what it was without God making it so. But the reality is, when they find out that Pharaoh's not in control of these things that God's going to debunk by showing that he's more powerful than the truth is going to be offensive to them. When they see that all that they ever believed in was a lie, they're going to struggle. And so the truth to those who are deceived is looked on like a plague. Did you know that? When you tell someone that that what they believe and what they've always known and their traditions and their family are patently false, don't be surprised when they're a little offended by it. You're debunking their way of life, their hope on earth is whatever the thing is. But the truth to those who believe it and receive it and follow it means salvation. 
So we got two options. Don't offer it to them, and then they're never offended, but they're never offended straight to hell. Or offer it to them and let them be offended, and hopefully that will shake them up enough to go, why would you be so rude to me? And perhaps they'll open their eyes and go, oh, because God loves me enough to offend me, enough to tell me that my ways are sinful and I'll be judged for them. And so that's what God's doing for Pharaoh. And what's interesting is as we, his ambassadors, on this earth, 2 Corinthians says this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, says this about those who follow Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Thanks be to God who always leads us. I love that because he's leading Moses and Aaron. He always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us, he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. How many of you have diffusers in your home? You diffuse the scents or the the flavors that you like to have. They used to use incense burners. Then we use candles, and we figure out those aren't good. And now we got candles that are made out of soybean. And we have all these different oils that we like to permeate through our houses because they, they either make us feel good or they smell good. They're good for our health. But God says, thanks be to God, because through us, God diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge, his wisdom in every place that he sends us. Did you know that you're a diffuser? God's placed the, the essential oil in you, the Holy Spirit. It's always pictured as olive oil in the New Testament. He says, but we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. So when you're around one another, hopefully you gain, you get to enjoy the fragrance of Jesus Christ and it's just this restful place to be. But to the, we are also the fragrance of Christ among those who are perishing. And if you're dying and you're putrid and you're, we are the aroma of death leading to death. To the person that's lost, it's just about death. But to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? And so what I want to point out is we exude or we diffuse the same fragrance among both unbelievers and believers, and yet there's a different reaction from both groups. How do you know if somebody's a believer or an unbeliever? Do they like your smell? And I'm not talking about if you wear degree or old spice or whatever, you know, or whatever organic thing you use. But what really gets me about this, and this is where I'll close, is that we see God reaching out to his people. We see God reaching out to Moses, Aaron, and the Israelites. But we also see him reaching out to Pharaoh, the slave driver. And we see him reaching out to the Egyptians, the ones that are their taskmasters that are whipping them. But they were at the beginning of this passage we read about how God knew ahead of time that Pharaoh would reject and harden his heart against the message and yet God spoke the message anyway he sent the messengers anyway but he sent them anyway to reveal himself to Pharaoh cuz guess what God loves Pharaoh and in the past think about the most wicked people you can think of the butchers of the past God loved Hitler <laughs> 
Did you know Jesus died for Hitler? Did you know that Jesus died for uh, Osama bin Laden? Did you, did you know that he reached out his arm? He is without excuse at eternity's door because of the manifold witness of God, even in creation, that God is God and he is not. Just like he revealed himself to Pharaoh. Just like he did to Adam. And of course, God was walking with Adam in the coolness of the garden. But when did God reveal himself to Adam? He revealed himself again after Adam sinned. After he disobeyed. We have a pursuing God. God revealed himself to Noah, knowing full and well that after Noah built the boat and saved his whole family mercifully through a flood, that Noah was going to grow a vineyard, get drunk, fall down, and be naked in front of his whole family. He was sinning against grace, and yet God did it anyway because he loves his creation. He loves people. He's trying to redeem them. God revealed himself to Abraham, who was from an idolatrous family that made idols. That's how they made their money. They made false gods. God revealed himself to that family, to Isaac and to Jacob and and to all mankind. And in Romans, my last scripture reference, in verse 18, It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know it, but they hide it. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, verse 20, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Pharaoh's going to see God in these signs and wonders, and yet he's going to refuse to glorify God. Nor were they thankful because they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God, after they made their decision to suppress the truth, after they made their decision not to glorify him as God, but to make themselves to be God or to worship images or animals or whatever, pleasure, Therefore, he gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Why? Because we prefer the lie. It's more comfortable for us. That means I don't have to change. I can just continue to be who I am. God loves me that way. He leaves me that way. But that's not the gospel. Jesus came to save us from ourselves. We're our own worst enemy. And when he comes to save us from ourselves, he changes us from the inside out and he redeems every piece of our lives and we're no longer slaves. He didn't buy us back from slavery so we can go back to it and enjoy it. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. They even, their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And it goes on and on and on. We see the fruit of rejecting God as God. But then later, He sent Aaron and Moses in this passage, but later he's going to send his son. 
He's going to send his son, just like Moses and Aaron, to reveal himself to the world through signs and through wonders. Right? Jesus did signs and wonders. And you might think, well, but they weren't like plagues. Well, not to us. But we see somebody maimed or broken or blind and, or dead and raised from the dead. That's a wonder. That's a sign. This is God. But how did the Pharisees and the scribes respond to that? They saw the miracles he did. They heard him forgive sin, and they got angry. They hardened their heart against Jesus and ultimately rejected him and said, you know what? We need to kill this guy. We need to put a hit on him. They were the mob. They were the mob. And so they rejected him, and they killed him. But many would be saved by believing and following him. And so Jesus and God... They, in one, reflect themselves, they reveal themselves to the ungodly. And they do it because God so loves the whole world. And so I love this message today because no doubt we see some things about Moses and Aaron. And no doubt we see some things about Pharaoh hardening his heart. But I think the the big point I want to make is that God is still reaching out to people that do not know him and he wants to use you just like he used Aaron and Moses. And he knows that many are going to harden their hearts, but that doesn't mean that you stop speaking. That doesn't mean that you stop following. That doesn't mean that you give up, because guess what? He loves all the people that you love, and he loves all the people that you don't love. Did you know that the gospel says that God loves President Biden? And he loves President Trump, no matter what side of the fence you're on. He loves the the followers of those presidents. He loves the people that disagree with the things that you feel the most strongly about. And he put you in their lives to ignore the stuff you can't stand, to love them enough, to, to, to bear with them enough to go, well, here's where my hope is. And hopefully you can tell them that your hope is is not in their opposing side, but it's actually in something that this world can't offer. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel and we thank you for this passage. And I just um, give you thanks for just revealing your character to us, that you reveal yourself to your enemies, sparing no expense. And that if we will, after hearing your word, believing it, receiving it, resting our hope upon it, just simply spread it to others and share the same truths that we've come to know and live by, that you will do mighty works in our day. And so, Father, I want to pray on behalf of all those that don't know you, maybe in here, maybe in our valley, maybe in our workplaces and this county and others. Lord, would you begin a mass exodus from the life of the world for all of those sheep who are lost without a shepherd, all those sheep who are being beaten by this world and and knocked down by the ways of the world, would you set them free and would you use our testimony to help them overcome and to receive eternal life in Jesus' name. Amen.